Welcome back to the Freightways Fuel Buyer Summit. I'm John Kingston, the editor-at-large of Freightways. And uh, with me today is an old friend, John Hours, the executive vice president of Turner Mason & Company. John's here to talk about something I'm going to tell you right now that you don't have to go very long following oil and in particular oil products to come across an announcement of a new renewable diesel project at a time when U.S. refineries are in some cases shutting down or they're being sold by existing owners. Renewable diesel is the hot new commodity that's getting a good flow of investment funds. So just what is that product and why is it so hot? I knew I had to bring John in to talk about it as executive vice president of Turner Mason. Uh, Turner Mason is one of the leading refinery engineering consultants and research firms in the world. Uh, as I mentioned, I've known John for a long time and uh, I knew I had to have him on. So John, welcome. Well, thank you, John. Great to be on with y'all and great to... Uh speak to a sort of maybe a little different audience for us. Right. So let's start with the very basics. What is renewable diesel and why is it different than regular diesel? Well, renewable diesel is uh, uh, not derived from uh, fossil fuels. It's derived from agricultural byproducts. Uh, and as such, is uh, that's the reason for the name, renewable. Um, the byproducts can include anything from uh, different kinds of greases, animal fats, or vegetable oils. Uh, to become renewable diesel, these products have to be hydro-treated, uh, which means hydrogen has to be uh, introduced through a process very similar to that used in petroleum refining. And petroleum refining, is, as uh, most uh, truckers know, uh, uh, hydro-treating uh, primarily removes uh, other impurities, primarily removes sulfur, so you can produce an ultra-low sulfur product. In renewable diesel, the hydro-treating process removes metals, and uh, primarily compounds containing nitrogen, especially oxygen, uh, to stabilize it and, and make it a, uh, a, a, a combustible, uh, a very easily combustible fuel. Uh, once it's uh, hydro-treated, renewable diesel actually is essentially identical to petroleum diesel from a chemical standpoint. It's fully fungible, can be blended, uh, it can be used up to 100% renewable diesel and used just like uh, like uh, petroleum diesel. Actually has better properties than petroleum diesel, higher cetane, you know, generally above 70 cetane numbers, and uh, generally lower cloud points. So a very attractive product uh, from a from a uh, consumer standpoint. But now there's another type of diesel that uh, truckers have had to deal with uh, over the years, increasingly over the years, and that's biodiesel. What is the difference between renewable diesel and biodiesel? Biodiesel is uh, derived from similar agricultural byproducts as renewable, but it's not hydro-treated. Uh, instead, it's produced from a less intensive and therefore less expensive a costly process called transesterification. Uh, they actually call, sometimes they call biodiesel, uh, the official name for it is fatty acid methyl esters. Uh, and so what uh, the reason biodiesel is different, you know, again, it's a simpler process, cheaper to produce, also uh, less, uh, not, not as an attractive a product. It uh, has significant, in, in the esterification process, you introduce oxygen, so it has significant 10 to 12% oxygen content in it, uh, makes it less stable, uh, limited uh, storage self-life, has uh, higher freeze and cloud points as a result, uh, also causes greater emissions during combustion, uh, can also cause damage to rubber and plastic components in the fuel system of, of engines. And as a result, it can't be blended uh, 100%. Uh, it's limited uh, generally to uh, less than 20%. Uh, during the winter, it can be it, the limits are generally down to five percent. So uh, uh, it's an inferior product from a, a blending and a combustion standpoint, and an emission standpoint, and a storage and transportation standpoint. 
it it was it was right now it's it's in higher volume out there. It's used in more states, uh, but the the demand for biodiesel is pretty much flat line. It'll probably go down a bit over time. Yeah, I'm going to want to come back to the biodiesel issue, but uh, let, let's let's come back to renewable diesel for a minute. Uh, you know, at Freightways, I've written many stories about refineries closing down or companies making significant investments in renewable diesel. And we know, and um, what I, we're, I make sure we put in every story, is that a lot of that is because of a significant amount of governmental support for it. Would renewable diesel even exist if it wasn't for various government incentives? Uh, not in any great way. It might be small amounts. It's similar to ethanol. You know, there might be regionally some uh, production of, of uh, renewable diesel, but uh, by and large, it's, uh, it's supported uh, by government mandates and incentives. All right. And now let's talk about a couple of what they are. On the federal level, you have a renewable fuel standard that has to be met by really all 50 states. And then in California in particular, you have the low carbon fuel standard, which incentivizes fuels that have a low carbon footprint. And renewable diesel has a very low carbon footprint. Is it safe to say that the vast majority of renewable diesel in this country is finding its way into the tanks in California or is it being consumed anywhere in the country? Yeah, the, the large majority is being consumed in California, and Oregon also has an LCFS program that's in place. Uh, but you know, California is much larger demand than, than Oregon, and Washington's about to have a an LCFS program. Also, uh, they're, they're, they have discussed uh, LCFS programs in uh, other states, and uh, primarily in Upper Midwest and in your part of the country in the Northeast. Those are uh, a ways away. So for the foreseeable future, really, it's a, it's a California story. Now, if if I was a trucker, in, if I was a trucker in California and I pulled into a pulled into a, a, a station, um, a, a service station, or you know, a gasoline retailer, a gasoline and diesel retailer, if I go and fill my car, fill my truck with diesel, would I know that it's renewable diesel, or is it just it comes out of the the tank and it can be petroleum diesel and or renewable diesel? Yeah, you would you would have no idea. Uh, it, like I said, it's fully fungible and blendable into uh, into into petroleum derived diesel. Uh, I I I haven't paid attention to how they label it out there, so I can't tell you for sure whether uh, you could tell from the labeling on the pump. But you would you certainly wouldn't be able to tell from the combustion. Uh, it, you co- you couldn't tell uh, the way it performs in your engine. Again, renewable diesel actually has a superior cetane number to most petroleum diesels. Uh, you know, uh, upwards of seventy. Uh, cetane numbers versus you know forty five fifty for a, a petroleum diesel, but uh, again you would you wouldn't even be able to tell unless there's some labeling. I don't think there is. Is it having an impact on price? Uh, you, you obviously have made clear that you don't just buy renewable diesel versus buying petroleum diesel. It all gets blended together. But is there is there any evidence that uh, all this renewable diesel that's being incentivized to be sold in the California market is having an impact on diesel prices in California relative to the rest of the country? Uh, you know, California is, uh, you know, their, their, their petroleum derived uh, prices are higher too because of their unique position and the regulatory environment out there. I would say directionally over time, uh, you know, again, renewable diesel from a, from a consumer standpoint is priced the same as petroleum derived diesels. You know, you don't even know how much is in there at any given point. Uh, the producer makes money on it. He, the producer of the renewable diesel is the one that gets the, uh, the blender tax credit, the, the LCFS, uh, CI-related uh, credit, and the uh, uh, the RFS, uh, you know, RIN-related credits, you know, which can which can run you know close to two fifty a gallon uh, in total. 
but that goes to the producer of the product. Uh, ultimately, uh, if, as you replace maybe a lower cost of diesel with uh, higher volumes of renewable diesel, basically being forced into the pool by mandate, that directionally should make the cost of diesel at the pump higher in a state with uh, the LCFS mandates than in a state without the LCFS mandates. Just like uh, you know, uh, you know, in the old days when you had you know gasoline prices were higher and in uh, super in in the uh, cities that required or the metro areas that required higher cost, uh, the higher uh, tighter specification gasoline. So, Cal, Cal, because of because of regulation, uh, diesel prices are going to be higher in areas where those mandates are in effect. But again, it's it all goes in pool. So at the consumer level, uh, you know, 100% petroleum derived diesel in California is going to price the same as uh, something that's 100% renewable diesel. Yeah, when I was at my former employer, Rest in Peak Global Platts, which is where I first met John, uh, I went out to California. I did, took a couple of LCFS specific trips uh, to gain a lot of knowledge about the LCFS for what we were doing. And I think at the time, the credits were maybe five to 10 cents for LCFS credit. Uh, and now, uh, what, what, what have they been running recently, John? Uh, you know, they're probably close to a dollar, you know, 90 cents to a dollar, but, you know, changing quite a bit. But uh, really, the uh, the LCFS impact right now, and it's, uh, that, that assumes the LCFS credit price at, you know, say $200 a metric ton, uh, that translates to 92 cents. And so I think it's somewhere uh, close to that. I haven't looked at the latest LCFS number, but I think it's somewhere so close anyway, to that. So anyway, so you can argue it's been a successful program or, or not. But anyway, um, now one, one thing that's happened here is, uh, because you, uh, you know, it's just, of course, certainly exacerbated by the pandemic that you've had several refineries in the United States close. Uh, there was the big one in Philadelphia uh, and in California, particularly Phillips 66 closed one called the Rodeo Refinery, but they didn't close it down completely because they converted some of the units to making just renewable diesel. The question I have for you is when you look at the refining capacity in this country that's been lost and then you offset it with the amount of renewable diesel capacity that has been built. Uh, is the renewable diesel additions, are the renewable re- 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 diesel additions uh, compensating for the lost diesel capacity that was made from petroleum? Uh, not completely. Uh, I would say, you know, uh, we've, we've had about 1.3 million barrels per day of capacity lost over the last 18 months in, uh, in the U.S., uh, much of that uh, as a result of the uh, drop in demand due to, to the lockdowns, the COVID-related lockdowns. Uh, these these are all refineries that probably would have, over time, uh, come down anyway. But you know the lockdowns accelerated that schedule. Uh, PES in Philadelphia was uh, again a refinery is in trouble, and then you had the explosion, and you know so it was probably something that was coming down anyway due to other factors, market factors, you know stagnating demand and things like that. Uh, and, um, so, uh, uh, you know, that 1.3 million barrels a day probably translates to something close to four to 500,000 barrels a day of diesel supply, uh, over the next 10 years, renewable diesel, uh, production will probably grow by 250,000 barrels a day. So that doesn't completely replace it. Uh, the existing refiners can adjust the feed slates, uh, you know, operations, uh, you know, they, they can adjust their operations to probably make up for the re- most of the rest of it. But it certainly could have an effect on the supply-demand balance. You know, overall, we are long diesel in the U.S. We export 
you know, million barrels a day, give or take, you know, depending on the, on the month or year. Uh, but uh, so, so we are long. Much of that's going into markets in Latin America and, and, uh, and uh, uh, even further afield. Uh, but so, but any, anytime, you know, in a, in a, in a market, any, any amount, any impact on the supply, uh, especially in an environment where uh, the, you know, demand, even if you hold demand flat, you're going to impact prices. And now uh, we're in an environment right now where jet fuel de- demand is still low. It's going to come back, uh, you know, as uh, air travel continues to return. So that's going to put some more pressure on the market because jet fuel, uh, you know, kerosene and, di- and uh, diesel are pretty interchangeable. Uh, so I, I can see some fairly tight markets for diesel over the next couple of three years. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, who can forecast the future? I, I certainly can't. But given everything I know right now, I would think that the, the, the this lip markets, diesel markets are going to go up rather than down more than likely over the next two to three years. I do want to point out something because I think it helps make make a point that you talked about diesel exports. You would never, ever export renewable diesel because then you won't get the credits that you generate from uh, the renewable identification numbers for the renewable fuel standard and the LCFS credits in California. Am I correct in that? Right, right. Renewable diesel is going to end. And, and right now it's going to end up in California because then you get the full credit, get the LCFS credit, which is of the, you know, if, if you add those three together, again, I'm just taking a point in time, you know, the LCFS credit is, say, say it's about a dollar and the total credit's 250 so it, it, it makes all sense in the world for all those uh, renewable diesel volumes to flow into the, the place where you get that, that dollar, that's 40% of that total credit uh, or incentive. And you know, the blender trash credit, if it goes away, then uh, the LCFS part of the credit becomes even greater. So renewable diesel, by all, for all intents and purposes, is going to flow into those LCFS markets, which primarily is California right now. You can't make renewable diesel without these various feedstocks you talked about, uh, restaurant grease, animal fats, uh, vegetable oils, soybeans, a, a very good source of, of, of uh, renewable diesel feedstock. Uh, but those feedstocks are also used for other things. And no surprise, there's a shortage of some of them, like there's a shortage of everything these days. And in fact, I believe that there was one, at least one renewable diesel plan, plans, uh, renewable diesel project that was put on the shelf because the developer was afraid they couldn't get the feedstocks to run it. So th- this sort of great path to lots and lots of renewable diesel, is this kind of the Achilles heel of it, that there might not be an adequate number of uh, feedstocks? Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and uh, just as, as we hit a blend, you know, there's no blend wall with renewable diesel, as I talked about earlier. It could be blended 100% into uh, uh, diesel at the pump. Uh, but there is a feedstock supply wall. Uh, so... You know, the early you know, renewable diesel projects, you know, it, it, they actually could run on, you could say, discounted feedstocks, things, things like rest, like uh, uh, French fry grease and, and other cooking oil, you know, waste cooking oils. Those things were being thrown away, actually disposed of at a cost. All of a sudden, uh, they became valuable as feedstock for uh, producing renewable diesel. And as the demand for them, them went up, you quickly exhausted the supply. So... Those so-called advantaged, uh, advantaged feedstocks from a from a producer standpoint, because they were sort of waste products from from uh, the, uh, uh, the the guys, you know, the, the restaurants. They're just getting rid of their their greases. Uh, you know, other uh, animal processing plants were getting rid of their their uh, tallows and other animal fats. Uh, that's a limited supply. Those supplies aren't growing. That's what what's being produced is being produced. Uh, so 
as the demand for renewable diesel grows, and it's going to grow, you know, uh, five to six fold over the next uh, 10 years, uh, you're, you're going to run out of that supply. So incremental uh, feedstock supply is primarily going to come from the soybean oil. That's going to be probably the biggest one. And yeah, you can plant more soybeans and produce more soybean oil, but it's going to be a, a relatively premium priced product. It's not going to be a waste product, a, dis, a, a distressed product. And even those other ones no longer distressed products anymore. When the, when the demand exceeds supply, you know, it's, it's, it becomes a seller's market rather than the buyer's market that it was originally. So, uh, we're going to, we're going to, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there are competing, uh, markets for, you know, just like with for ethanol, you know, corn, you're competing with food, the food markets, or the agricultural markets. And, and that's driven the price up of those agricultural products of soybeans and corn. And uh, we, we've seen some significant volatility in those areas. But, but in the end, it's going to be a feedstock supply uh, limit. You're not, you can't, we have, un- as it's turned out, we now have essentially unlimited supplies of petroleum. Uh, we were worried about a demand peak demand rather than peak supply, which we used to worry about, but there aren't unlimited supplies of agricultural products. Uh, so uh, uh, you're going you're gonna to hit a feedstock supply limit. It, we're never going to get to a world where renewable diesel is uh, uh, replaces petroleum diesel. It's always going to be some limited part of the, that pool. Maybe it'll get up to 10% of the pool, maybe a little bit higher, but it's never going to be a, a, major, a majority part of that pool. Let's talk about go back to biodiesel because I think it's important for this audience of freightways here. Um, truckers will complain that in the winter, as you pointed out, biodiesel can be a problem. It gets it has a very low cloud point, I believe. Um, it can kind of gum up engines. It can slow their performance. And uh, I actually participated not participated, but I listened to a forum on biodiesel from my former employer Platts last week. And somebody made the comment that they felt that the pull of the renewable diesel market is so strong. And the incentives there are so good at co- coming out of California and then presumably later Oregon and then the other states that so much feedstock will be diverted into renewable diesel that biodiesel might just disappear. And nobody would really be all that sad about it because it, it, it is a problem on the trucking side. I know some biodiesel goes into heating oil. I don't know if it, that has any impact on the boilers um, that uh, that heat your house. But that if the, the soybeans and the animal fats, et cetera, go into renewable diesel, there's going to be some happy people on the other end of that. Does that have any validity? Uh, biodiesel, uh, we don't have it disappearing, but we have it uh, decreasing. Uh, so, you know, right now, let me see what the numbers are. I think we produce uh, or, or consume and produce uh, about 120,000 barrels a day of biodiesel in the U.S., uh, we have that number going down to 100,000 barrels a day or, or thereabouts. Those are round numbers by 2030. So uh, that's not disappearing, but it's declining. You know, we've, we, we peaked. And, 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 the, and the, if, you know, the blender tax credit goes away completely, uh, that might decline more. You know, you've, we've had uh, the, the blender tax credit uh, go away and then come back. You know, it's been a continual uh, fight in the U.S. Congress uh, to, to uh, keep reauthorizing that uh, tax credit. And if it went away completely, you know, you can see even lower volumes than that. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 declining in importance, whereas renewable diesel is going to continue to grow as LCFS requirements become greater. Back to the feedstock issue, and we'll make this the last question. We could talk for a long time, but we only have a limited window. Um, you know, there have some been, been some big announcements made. I, I re- referred to the Phillips 
operation in um, Phillips Operation in California. Uh, there's some other big projects that have been announced. Because of the co- high cost of feedstocks and the av- limited availability, do you think we're going to not hear about any new projects for a while now? Uh, there are still people looking at uh, projects right now. If you look at the, uh, uh, the the number of projects that are out there that are being talked about and promoted, uh, there's probably more. Uh, just like in any kind of environment where you know you see uh, you know demand growing, uh, you you have more projects being promoted and developed than, than actually you need. So we probably have enough renewable diesel diesel projects in the hopper to satisfy uh, the growing demand. You know, demand is going to continue to grow in California. It could, like I said, even in other states. Uh, and certainly, if you you do get some of these LCF LCFS programs approved in places like uh, Minnesota, New York, and other places, uh, th- that would add to the demand. So, uh, it's, it, it, new projects that haven't been discussed so far are probably dependent on. Uh, that new demand coming from these new areas. Uh, the, the, the projects in the hopper right now are, are sufficient to supply the existing uh, expected growth and demand in, in the West Coast. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's it, it's sort of like the pipeline situation. You know, we had shortage of pipelines bringing light tidal from North Dakota and West Texas to the Gulf Coast. Well, we don't have that shortage anymore. We have an excess of, of pipelines, and you know, part of it was related to the, uh, the, the the slowdown and growth of that production. But a lot of it was related to the fact that anytime you got uh, an attractive market, you have more projects come to that market than you need. So, so right now, the, the most uh, the most advantaged projects, and I think the most advantaged projects are the ones within refinery gates, where refiners can leverage their existing equipment uh, to produce. Uh, the product, and also they can sort of leverage the market. They're not as dependent on market volatility because they're producing renewable diesel to meet their own uh, renewable uh, their their own renewables demand. You know, their RIN demand. Uh, so, uh, merchant projects are going to be less advantaged than uh, refiner producer uh, uh, projects. Well, I'm going to guess that any new project is probably going to turn to Turner Mason for consulting advice. So. <laughs> We're working. We're working on a lot of them right now, and we'd be happy to work on more. Uh, and uh, you know, we know that we know the space very well. Uh, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's evol- it is evolving, but uh, uh, and, it, and it will continue to evolve just because the regula- regulatory environment continues to evolve, as does the market. We want to thank you, John. John Hours, Executive Vice President of Turner Mason, talking here today about renewable diesel uh, here on the Freightways Fuel Buyer Summit. I've been your host for this chat, John Kingston. Please stick around. We've got more to come.